What's going on guys? It's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you with another edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Thanks for tuning in, welcome to the show, and thanks for those of you who may have tuned in last week as well. For those of you who didn't, as I say on every show, you can still go check out last week's edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead, and indeed any of the editions of Sports Entertainment is Dead there's ever been over on Blog Talk Radio. You can download those shows on demand. You can also download any of the shows here on Lords of Pain Radio. We bash one out every single night of the week for you guys. You can download them all on demand at Blog Talk Radio, or better yet, you can do it through lordsofpain.net, so go check them out if you've missed them. Last week, of course, I did the TLC alternative uh, pre-show, as well as finishing off mine and Maverick's look back at the evolving relationship between Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins, and I have to say that the three weeks Mav and I spent doing that were well worth it come this last Sunday. Their match was so rich in little detail, as it always is, uh, and that was sort of all fresh in my mind, but I'm going to be getting into that a little bit later on, because of course it's post-pay-per-view Wednesday, and post-pay-per-view Wednesday here at Sports Entertainment is Dead means one thing, it's time for your performance art review of WWE's latest pay-per-view offering, TLC Tables, Ladders and Chairs 2018. Now for those of you who may have missed my doing this for Survivor Series last month, it's pretty simple, it's just your your standard review of a pay-per-view, but of course with that performance art lens engaged, because this is Sports Entertainment is Dead, I am Samuel Plant and it's kind of my thing. So we're going to be doing that, and traditionally this was uh, a column that I would do every post-pay-per-view Sunday, a relatively popular one, and I decided once I had my own podcast space to move it across to the podcast, because frankly it just gives me a little bit more space to be able to cover some of the most interesting aspects of any given pay-per-view. We're going to be going through the top three matches from the pay-per-view last Sunday and if we've got any spare time left over which I'm kind of hoping we'll have we'll be able to touch on a couple of other little things as well especially coming out of the pay-per-view because it's been a busy old week on WWE TV this week as well and we're going to be focusing as we always do on the in-universe aspect because sports entertainment as we know is dead but there are going to be times when I'm going to have to get a little bit meta. Anything I don't cover on this show, you'll be able to catch me covering on the right side of the pond, which airs, of course, this Friday, where Mav, Mazza, and I will all be breaking down where WWE is headed coming out of the events of last Sunday. Before we get to that, though, a little bit of, I guess, admin work to do at the top of the show. For those of you who've been listening over the last few weeks, you will know that we've got a couple of very big special shows coming your way in the next fortnight. Next week, I'm going to have my Wednesday night Lords of Pain radio predecessor, Chad the Doc Matthews, here on Sports Entertainment is Dead. Excuse me. <clears throat> And he's going to be here, we're going to be debating our conflicting philosophies when it comes to receiving professional wrestling, which should be a particularly interesting discussion considering the funk that he's been in recently. And I've seen him tweeted in recent days as well about his revisiting of the Dean Ambrose-Seth Rollins feud after listening to Mav and myself cover that over the last few weeks. Uh, And dare I say, maybe he's picked up on a little bit of the method, but we're going to be breaking all of that good stuff down next week. We're going to have a little bit of a, a little bit of a conversation, a little bit of debate. He's, of course, the author of the two books on sports entertainment is dead, and I am the author of the one book on performance art. So it's going to be going to be a really interesting discussion. That's coming your way next week, slightly earlier time than normal. I thought it was a, a Christmas Day special before I realised a couple of weeks ago after having advertised it as just that for some time, that it's actually a Boxing Day special. But, you know, it's let's not split hairs. The point is, two hours special next week, slightly earlier start time. Keep your eyes peeled. Chad the Doc Matthews right here on Sports Entertainment is dead as we debate the best way to receive pro wrestling. And then, 
a couple of a week after that we're talking January the 2nd the post New Year's Day special another two hour special edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead where I'm going to be breaking down my choices for matches of the year in the five this year six categories that I've decided to do including main event, undercard, tag team, network, TV, and of course, Seth Rollins, match of the year. And incidentally, you could keep your eyes peeled because I'm going to be announcing the shortlists for each of those categories in a column uh, two or three days before the podcast goes out. That's going to be in a couple of Sundays' times. So keep your eyes peeled for that to know what the shortlists are going to be. I'm going to break all those matches down on the show and announce what I think should be the match of the year in each of those categories. So we've got a couple of Big, big episodes of sports entertainment coming your way. And hopefully, I'm looking forward to sometime in January doing something Royal Rumble related for a few weeks as well. Because I'm a huge fan of the Royal Rumble. And of course, the January Classic is fast approaching. It's my favourite time of the year, favourite event of the year. So, not sure what I'm going to be doing yet. But I wanted to break something down over a couple of weeks with that as well. Okay, so I guess without any further ado then we can start cracking on with the main content of the show. Last Sunday, we, as you all know, it was Tables, Ladders and Chairs 2018, WWE's latest pay-per-view offering. Those who may follow my columns on lordsofpain.net will know that I was hopelessly optimistic about this pay-per-view going in, and I fully recognize that that optimism was indeed hopeless. I felt like on paper it had the potential to be a real kickstart to a road to WrestleMania that could come to be quite generationally defining for the contemporary generation of talent. It's my belief every era has a maturation point, a peak moment. So you think WrestleMania 17 for the Attitude Era, for example. Uh, And I feel like whatever era we've been in, we've been in it for a few years now, I would probably date it around some point in 2016, not quite sure where until it's all said and done, but that feels like the natural start point. And so it's been going for a couple of years, and it feels like maybe we're starting to move towards a very fatalistic moment in company history, what with the recent events surrounding Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar's contract continuing to run out and get renewed, run out and get renewed. Seth Rollins now making a play to be the, the top guy in the company in Reigns' absence. It feels like there's something moving uh, in the earth of the of the company that could indicate we're heading towards a maturation point which often happen at these big times of year and you know it's my it's also my belief as i covered in a column again a couple of weeks ago that that the december pay-per-view really is the start of wrestlemania season wwe says it's, it's january say it's royal rumble a lot of fans say the same but you can see through history december pay-per-views a lot of the pieces start to get moved around a lot of the characters and the story arcs start to get uh, put into a place where they can begin in earnest in the december pay-per-view i mean one great example would be 2015's edition of tlc where they really kick-started the triple h roman reigns scenario that story arc um, in December of that year so really I believe that and it's become more prominent as the years have gone on but I, I think you look back on last Sunday's pay-per-view and the first thing that really stands out because I've seen it a couple of times now that's key to doing these performance art reviews is making sure you get a second more dispassionate watch of it away from the moment and I think what you find is like I say a lot of those pieces have been put in place now for the for the for the narrative arcs that we might be expecting come WrestleMania season this year. The major ones 
to really begin in earnest. So you think about where Seth Rollins was left coming out of his match with uh, Dean Ambrose for the Intercontinental Championship. Most prominently, of course, you look at what's happening with the situation surrounding Charlotte Flair, Becky Lynch, Ronda Rousey. Those pieces are now put in place. They're ready. They're lined up on the starting line. We just need that starting pistol to fire, and we can fully expect, I imagine, for that to happen some point around Royal Rumble weekend. The other exciting thing as well is coming out of the television, this whole shake-up situation, which is a topic we'll probably discuss on the pond. It's not really conducive to sports entertainment is dead. But that entire situation has started to show a glimmer of some other interesting things that could start happening around this time of year. WrestleMania this year could be a big moment. You know, Mustafa Ali's just got a pinfall over the WWE Champion, and while I don't necessarily fully expect him to have a major match come WrestleMania, it would be interesting to see if he does get on that card somewhere and that would really mark a turning point for the existence and the the relevance position that 205 Live has in WWE so that should prove to be interesting of course the, there's a real difficult situation surrounding the WWE Championship at the minute you'd think that maybe Daniel Bryan the hot streak that he's starting to get on is going to be carrying that championship into the showcase of Immortals this year but everything could change on the drop of a hat uh, in, in WWE especially now that they've reintroduced Elimination Chamber into the mix so even though some of the pieces have been put in place last Sunday there's still a lot of shaping to go it's just that you feel like Last Sunday, you know, those those character arcs, like I said, those narrative arcs, it feels like they're beginning to get prepped for that big time of year. And so I think it's certainly fair enough to say that the December pay-per-view marks the true beginning of the road to WrestleMania. That's why I felt hopelessly optimistic going into the event. That's why I felt like it could become a very relevant pay-per-view to the near future, because if this WrestleMania season does prove to be a maturation point for this contemporary generation, because it's got to come at some point, WWE can keep putting it off all they like, but it's got to happen at some point, and what better a time than now? And last Sunday, of course, having you know a triple threat match between three of the most dominant and iconic tag teams of this current era, uh, having Seth and Dean wrestle each other for the IC title, which you know really is the the iconic feud of this generation, set to a backdrop of one of the most uh, important championship uh, stories of this generation as well. I mean, it just felt like you know the 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 headlining women's match that represented the kind of watershed year that women's wrestling has had in WWE. WWE this year, it just felt like a moment in time heading in. Sadly, coming out of the show, I'm not sure that that really played out. I mean, yes, there were interesting developments for a number of of the major characters on, I think, both brands, um, but it just it, it felt a little ordinary through and through, and that's not necessarily a problem because it's a December pay-per-view, so you kind of half expect that there's that it's going to be pretty run-of-the-mill stuff. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you the last time a December pay-per-view really knocked it out of the park. Um, but nonetheless, when you when you go in with high hopes, and you know, more for me for having them, but when you go in with high hopes, they're not met. It's always it's always slightly disappointing. But there were a lot of positives, and I think that the three top matches of the card last Sunday marked really the major three positives. I know, big surprise, right? And I'm talking, of course, about the three matches that ended the show. Two of them were around 25 minutes, one of them around 20 minutes. You had Daniel Bryan versus AJ Styles for the WWE Championship. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. The new Daniel Bryan versus AJ Styles for the WWE Championship. You had Dean Ambrose challenging Seth Rollins for the Intercontinental Championship. And you had Charlotte and Asuka challenging Becky Lynch in a triple threat women's TLC match, the first ever, I might add, for the SmackDown Live 
Women's Championship. And the first thing to say is that I think from a tonal point of view, the three matches complemented one another beautifully. And that was my initial reaction with uh, when I was talking with Steve on Aftershock on Sunday night. And it remains my reaction now. I haven't gone back and just rewatched that entire stretch of the pay-per-view a second time round, just uh, an hour or so before I started recording the show. They the, the three matches. I mean, there there are certain similarities between Styles versus Bryan and Rollins versus Ambrose, but the three matches were different enough to really complement one another. And I think from a you know just from the the I guess if you were to look at WWE pay per view as a as a genre in its own right, and you look at the kind of the the defining aspect of what marks a WWE what makes a WWE pay per view a WWE pay per view. I think the best versions. Uh, and one of the most prominent examples I can give is WrestleMania 19, stack the big matches up in a row at the end. WrestleMania 19 does that beautifully with its big four matches, the world title match, the street fight with Hogan and Vince, the Rock Austin three match, and, and the WWE title match. They all come in a, in a row of four. And it just, you know, you just get this sense of the, the, the show building up nicely and nicely and nicely, and you get a nice main event feel to the last few matches there. Uh, and when they complement one another well, even better, because it means you're ending the pay-per-view on a bit of a buzz rather than a bit of a downer. And that can really help shape memory of any given pay-per-view as well. So I think that that, you know, that very much to TLC 2018's benefit, those last three matches, you know, complemented one another well. We're all of a, a relatively different uh, tone, different style. Obviously, the TLC match is genre in its own right, but I think the two singles matches, you know, if you were to, to I guess genre is the wrong word, but if you were to look at different types, different styles of, of singles match, you had to... to different ones you had in the case of the WWE title match which probably explains why it got the friendlier reception you had a a a far more contemporary version of a singles match it had a lot more action a lot more content it was very influenced by the influx of indie style that we've seen in WWE over the last few years and uh, you know I mean it was still I'm not calling it you know a quote quote spot fest or anything like that because it wasn't it was a very intelligent very cerebral match going to break it down in a bit more depth shortly Um, but it was it was definitely of a contemporary style I think you know packing that content into the runtime Ambrose and Rollins, you know, I mean, first, the first thing to say, and again, break it down in more depth shortly, the first thing to say is that the crowd reaction isn't half as hostile on the second watch as you may remember it being after a first watch. So it's definitely, definitely worth a revisit. But the other aspect that I would say is that it was ultimately an older school style of match, and that's very quintessential of Dean Ambrose's style of wrestling in the ring. He's a precision storyteller in the likes of, you know, Bret Hart's of years past. So it's a lot more slow. It's a lot more cerebral it's a lot more demanding of your attention and i think that sometimes that can put put modern fans particularly off a little bit and i don't say that critically you know i don't say it as a criticism it's just an observation um so immediately you had two very different styles of match and then as i say the tlc match genre in its subgenre in its own right i should say subgenre of the ladder match in its own right um well to be fair i suppose you could say it's been around long enough now to really be a genre of its own um and that really got the crowd hot for for the ending as well. So three, first of all, three great matches in their own rights. Even though I know a lot of people will disagree with the Rollins Ambrose match being called great, um, but three matches that complemented one another nicely were stacked up against one another as they should have been. So all in all, the last sort of two hours of that show. 
uh, were incredible, were fantastic, I thought. Really top-of-the-range WWE stuff. Um, and and the kind of two-hour stretch of pay-per-view time... I mean, I'll tell you now, there's no way in hell I'm ever revisiting TLC in full, ever. four-hour TLC pay-per-view is ridiculous, frankly. Um, but that last two hours, I could easily go back and re-watch any given time. So kudos to WWE and for the five... Uh, two, four, five, six, seven performers. My maths is terrible. For the seven performers involved in those matches. But let's look at those each individually in a bit more depth then. Let's start with the WWE Championship match between AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan. Did it again. Sorry, AJ Styles and the new Daniel Bryan. Um, the first thing that really strikes me here is that the Daniel Bryan's new character, this this environmental crusader, shouldn't, I think, be misconstrued. And I, I just I have that horrible feeling that WWE are going to misconstrue their own creation here because I feel it's less about the environmental message. It's less about him being... Um, angry at people for being wasteful and for being consumers and, and all the rest of it, as much as it is about him harboring this fierce sense of moral superiority. This is a guy with a superiority complex now. There's always been that air of Daniel to Daniel Bryan, even like in a, in a real-world sense. I think he's always had a certain air of moral superiority over other people because of his lifestyle choices. And that's always kind of prevented me from really loving him quite as much as a lot of other fans have loved him. And that's kind of a meta point for SEID. But I feel it's worth making because, you know, they say that the best wrestling characters, it's an old cliche, but they say the best wrestling characters are the ones who basically amplify their own personality they tap into a real part of their own their own personality and dial it up to 11 to steal the famous spinal tap quote and i feel like that's what daniel bryan's very much doing i think he has this sense of moral superiority about him anyway so to be able to dial that up is working really well i mean moments when he just screams in in people's faces ignorant and slaps them or fickle and slaps them the exchange he had with mustafa ali a couple of weeks ago on smackdown live was tremendous absolutely excellent because of the way he just screamed ignorant in Ali's face and slapped him a couple of times. I mean, it's bullish and it's it's bullying. Uh, I mean, you could question the, uh, the social commentary you're putting out there by making the crusading environmentalist a bad guy. This is ultimately a company run by a good friend of Donald Trump. That's all I'm saying. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, let's not read too much into that. Ultimately, I think it's about the sense of you know, of that superiority complex that comes from this presumed sense of inherent moral superiority over those around him. That, however, I think is quite a difficult character to bring into matches, to translate into physical actions inside of inside of matches. And I think that the TLC match kind of demonstrated that a little bit because you'd had this growth of the new Daniel Bryan and the commentary, I think, by the way, the commentary team for these last three matches was awful on all three fronts but the first instance was when they were bizarrely thinking that Daniel Bryan had been purposefully lying for the last few years I don't think that's the case I think this this new Daniel Bryan stems from uh, almost a a post-traumatic inability to process the kind of emotions that have uh, accrued during the stressful and traumatic time he had when he was denied being able to wrestle for two years, which is something he really wanted to do. I think this is a side effect of that. But nevertheless, it's a difficult thing to bring into your matches. And I think that almost puts Daniel Bryan at a handicap anyway, because I've often said that Daniel Bryan's matches, while clinically impeccable, uh, structurally incredible, 
they sometimes lack a little bit of emotive weight. Uh, you think about the John Cena match at SummerSlam 2013. I've always said I'd take the CM Punk Lesnar match over that because the Punk Lesnar match feels like it's got a bit more emotional meat to it. It's not quite so so clinical. So I think by being given this incredible character that's leading to fantastic TV, it nevertheless makes, I dare say, life difficult or, or threatens to make life difficult for Daniel Bryan in terms of how do you then translate that character into your into your work on pay-per-view in the ring. I'm sure Daniel Bryan's, you know, he's he's an incredible performer. I'm not a pro wrestler beyond anything else. He is, so he's going to know how to do that. I look forward to seeing that take shape. I'm not sure it really came into play with the match with Styles on last Sunday's show, though. But that's not to say that that was a problem, because I think what Styles and Bryan benefited from was the fact that Bryan's characters kind of evolved during the span of their little rivalry, which really started off on friendly terms. These two had a match a, a few weeks back on SmackDown Live, which saw Daniel Bryan quite shockingly tap out to AJ Styles in a WWE title defense. I dare say the catalyst for what has then kind of shot this new Daniel Bryan into existence. Uh, and then they had a rematch, of course, in which Daniel Bryan got the low blow on AJ Styles and picked up the victory when he kind of, I guess, saw things going a little bit south again. And I felt like their match on Sunday really played heavily off of both of those. And that's that's what I really loved about it, particularly the first one, though. The f- I haven't had a chance to rewatch their second match yet, but their first match, the one where Daniel Bryan tapped out, I actually saw just yesterday as of recording. Uh, and... Uh, I did it. I watched it back for purposes of match of the year research, <clears throat> um, and what struck me immediately with the TLC match being fresh in my mind was how they, the, in a way, they present almost mirror images of one another. Now, neither both matches have been competitive. I think it's fair to say neither Brian nor Styles has held a, a, a strong advantage over the other one in any of their matches, and and of course, again, that's very indicative of that modern style of singles match, which always are very competitive. But it has felt like one of them perhaps has had the lion's share, shall we say, of the advantage in each effort. And I think that AJ Styles at least felt like he had the lion's share of the advantage in, in the first match that they had. He went after Brian's knee and eventually got Brian to tap out because of it. And it felt the inverse here. I felt like Brian had the lion's share of the advantage in this match because he was playing those psychological games with AJ Styles in terms of, you know, kind of wasting time on the outside, um, being being smug. I mean, that's one way in which the character has been brought into the matches brilliantly, is that self-satisfaction that's very prevalent in, in Brian's moral rants and, and soapbox standing. But that sense of smug satisfaction becomes very dangerous and quite frightening in the ring because you see it, you know, when he had uh, AJ in the um, bow and arrow hold or surfboard. I'm not sure. I, I'm not great with, with names of moves, so don't quote me on that. But when he had Brian uh, stretching Styles over his knees uh, and was battering Styles midsection on top of him, he had this smug, self-satisfied smile on his face. And it wasn't a kind of cliche sort of um uh what's the word i'm looking for it wasn't a uh vicious enjoyment of what was going on he wasn't being sadistic that's the word i'm looking for it wasn't sadism it was self-satisfaction and there was something a bit more disquieting about that fact i mean this isn't like a dean ambrose lunatic situation this isn't a mankind situation he wasn't so much enjoying dishing this pain out to aj styles as he seemed to just be proud of the fact that he could do it uh and and that's that's quite disturbing because then you think about how far he's going to be willing to test his own abilities against people in the ring and feel morally uh, untainted by doing that. 
it's like he's severed his own conscience. Uh, and that's that's worrying because Daniel Bryan is a fiercely capable competitor in the ring. We know this. He's a scientist. And the 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 wonderful thing about how these matches have evolved, these three matches they've had. Let me take a, a sidestep for a quick second here. Uh, sequels, I think, in wrestling, uh, you could almost call a genre in their own right because I think sequel matches, good good examples of sequel matches, watch a certain way, and you see over the course of a few two two competitors get very much more accustomed to one another's moves. They start countering things they weren't countering in the first match. They start anticipating things, and it seems like an obvious thing to say, but I think in the rush for all matches to be competitive these days. There's a certain art form to that that's that's kind of got diluted a little bit. What's been nice to see with these AJ Styles Daniel Bryan matches is that very much in play. The two of them have become much more accustomed to one another as the matches have gone on. And you know, I mean, the, what was beautiful, uh, almost, and I, I don't want to get too pretentious here, but almost balletic about the match that they had on Sunday was that you got this subtext of. That sense of sequel wrestling, so two guys who had who had encountered one another in the past, were familiar with one another's moves, all that sort of jazz. Um, but on the other hand, you had what set them up as equals in the first place, which is equally deep offensive retinues. You know, these two men have extensive offensive arsenals in the ring. And unparalleled, except for one another, uh, combative instincts in the ring. Just knowing what move to hit, when to hit it, letting their instincts drive them, letting their instincts dis. Uh, dictate what they're going to do next and that nine times out of ten leading to success for them so you've got these two these two mentalities in each performer tussling with each other and that really fed into the competitive vibe of the match i felt you know there were instances where they were fully capable of being able to predict what the next what the next move of their opponent was going to be because they'd seen it before they'd wrestle matches with each other they were familiar with that but at the same time each one of them you know they'd get an advantage that way but they'd also end up at a disadvantage because there'd be flashes momentary flashes where their combative instincts would take over they would go to do something that they always do uh, and uh, the fact that they were adapting their game but falling back on their usual game at the same time showed how much of a stalemate this was and that's what made the conclusion to the match so brilliant now my initial reaction on if you listen to Aftershock you'll know this I'm not always a huge fan of surprise pinfall finishes and I think they they certainly get overused in this day and age I know that happens to be something for instance that someone like Jake Roberts doesn't like I remember watching an interview with him and he said the most devastating uh, move in wrestling today was a schoolboy and and it's you know it's kind of a glib point to make but you see what he's saying I think maybe there's a little bit too much of a reliance on oh my god he got a pinfall out of nowhere um but you can kind of first of all expect that to crop up in a prolonged feud between two wrestlers who are uh, perhaps primarily known as technicians like AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan. Um, But also it worked well in the context here because this was very much even Stevens all the way through. And by the time the match is finished, there's almost a sense of, even though it'd been going on for 23 minutes, there's almost a sense of the of the two of them just getting warmed up. I mean, it it th- there's an odd, and I'm not sure effortless is the right word to describe it, but it feels like very little has happened, even though you've had 23 minutes of action-packed, content-heavy wrestling. Uh, it feels like when that finish comes, like I said, the two of them are only just getting warmed up, and that's quite exciting because it's the third match in the series. It doesn't feel old yet. I mean, they they are starting to repeat certain uh, set pieces in the ring, but uh, it doesn't feel old or sterile or stale by any means. 
and they're they're at a point where you know they can wrestle for 25 minutes and and you get a sense that okay now we're starting to settle into something now we're starting to get going and then boom Daniel Bryan picks up the victory out of nowhere I always felt like if I wanted a one-hour Ironman match for this contemporary generation, that I'd always want it to be uh, Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins. You know I have a unique attachment to that uh, wrestling relationship already. Three weeks of covering it, five out of however many I've done in SEID covering them. Should have told you that by now. But having watched that match back between Daniel Bryan and AJ Styles on Sunday, and I, you know, I, I think from an artistic point of view, it, it did suffer from the typical Daniel Bryan thing of, of being a little clinical and maybe not having all of that emotive spirit in it. But the way that it played out and the fact that, like I said, 20, 23 minutes into the match, it felt like they were just starting to get warmed up. I think there's real potential there for the two of them to put together an all-time instant classic, which again is a term that gets thrown around far too frequently. But I think, you know, they could really put together something genuinely historically special in a 60-minute Ironman match if they were to tap into that idea and play up to that idea of, you know, we've wrestled for 30 minutes, but we're both of such a class of performer, such a capability of performer, that guess what? We're just getting warmed up. So, all in all, I felt like their WWE title match was a fantastic follow-up to the two matches that they've had on television. I think if you were to watch the three as a trilogy, you've got three excellent matches forming a wonderful overarching story that has inherently changed the emotional complexion of one of the two men competing for that championship. Perhaps a little bit handicapped by uh, Brian's clinical style, perhaps a little bit handicapped by the lack of... of Uh, character development for AJ Styles since he's been a hero again but nonetheless I think three beautiful matches that form a great arc that culminated nicely this last Sunday and have left room the table for something genuinely special to happen I don't think we'll get a 60 minute Ironman match for what it's worth we're certainly not going to get one at Royal Rumble which already has two 60 minute matches on the card Uh, but you never know we can we can hold out hope and I think that there's genuine potential there Whatever happens, I dare say that there is a fourth match still in store for us. Maybe they'll weave Mustafa Ali into that. I think it would be a little bit of a shame if they did. I want Mustafa Ali to get a singles WWE title match, preferably at Royal Rumble, and you can wrap Styles and Bryan up in TV in the meantime. Um, But don't look past this rivalry as a late contender for rivalry of the year. It's been very simple, but it's been very expertly executed. I've been a big fan of it. I was a big fan of their match on Sunday. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's uh, spoiler alert. It's not on my shortlist for main event or undercard match of the year. But it came very, very close. Okay, well, that covers the uh, first of the three matches. Uh, I'm going to take us to a quick advert break. And when we come back, if you're still sticking with me, we'll crack on and take a look at the rather divisive Dean Ambrose versus Seth Rollins Intercontinental Championship match from last Sunday. Stay with me, folks. Okay, welcome back to the show. Thanks for staying with me, if you are still with me. I just saw during the advert break there that today, as of recording, uh, and indeed I'm recording this on the Wednesday, so today is, in fact, Mean Gene Oakland's birthday. So happy birthday to Mean Gene. Uh, you know, I, I can't help but feel like we could do with a, a few more Mean Gene-style um, interviewers backstage. You know, I, I, I miss the days when interviewers were allowed to actually react and respond in a very proactive way to what a lot of the wrestlers were saying and interact with them and just react like you know, actual human beings instead of robots. Uh, and Gene was was great at doing that. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, though, I have to say that on commentary, 
that exact idea proved to be a major initial detriment to the Intercontinental title match wrestled between Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins. I said it on Aftershock with Steve. It stuck out like a sore thumb when I watched this match back the second time around earlier on, which is, you know, Corey Graves constantly uh, attacking Renee for a relationship with Dean, constantly referring to their on-screen, to their off-screen relationship. It was absolutely ridiculous. It took the focus away from the relationship between um, Seth and Dean, which of course was the obvious focal point of this feud and it threatened to overshadow what was going on in the ring and frankly you know the announcers need to remember that they are not the stars of the show they're there to call the action they should do it and you know I just I get a little bit tired of the constant bickering and the constant inability to put together a creative thought and the constant um, you know, attempt to be uh, Mr. Hilarious and, and get the, the, the you know, the quips in. It's just all a bit too much. None of them are Bobby Heenan, and particularly Corey Graves needs to stop trying to be. Nonetheless, that was far from the match's biggest problem because, of course, the reaction coming out of TLC was that fans were very disappointed with this Intercontinental Championship match, which lasted a very similar length of time to the WWE title match. There were rumours flying around that Vince wasn't happy. The first thing to know, and and this is why, again, I watch every pay-per-view twice before I ever review it. When you go back and you you re-watch it, and I'm not just saying this, the fact is that the crowd reaction isn't half as hostile as, as I remembered it being, and it wasn't half as hostile, I dare say, as you may remember it being. Yes, it, that you get the this is boring chance, you get the little restlessness, but it happens, oddly, it happens very suddenly, and it passes very suddenly. It's a bit like a tropical rainstorm. It starts, it stops, and then the match carries on. Um, the first thing that I would say is... That well, obviously, you know, to begin with, people are welcome to dislike what they dislike and like what they like, and I'm not going to contest that. I'm here to talk about what I felt were the match's successes, though, uh, the creatively speaking, because this is sports entertainment. Is there? I thought that there were many. The first is that it was very much the match it had been advertised on television to expect happening, which was that Dean Ambrose was there to make Seth Rollins lose control, lose control of himself, of his emotions, and ultimately of his Intercontinental Championship. That was Dean's explicit aim that he revealed to the world a couple of weeks ago on Monday Night Raw. Why exactly was it Dean's explicit aim? Well, there could be a whole host of reasons. I mean, Dean Ambrose is a complex guy with a complex mind, and you're never quite sure what's going through. I think there was a a sense of of just pure revenge there, wanted to take the IC title away from Seth because it had come to to mean so much to Seth over the course of last year and was sort of a symbol of Seth's taking Dean for granted. Uh, I think there was an element of wanting to just embarrass Seth to make Seth look like a joke um, because that is the way that Dean feels Seth has made him feel and indeed he he visited that in the match when he was screaming at Seth that he wasn't a joke late on in the action. Um, I dare say there's there's an element of, of vaingloriousness to this as well, that Dean, you know, because Dean was with Kevin Owens, one of the guys, and I mentioned this on the alternative pre-show last week, was one of the guys who started that renaissance of the Intercontinental Championship get zero credit for it so um, you know I dare say that maybe there's an element of him that feels like he should have the Intercontinental Championship that it is his to have and that Seth is just benefiting from his hard work so there's, I think there's a whole litany of reasons that feed into uh, why Dean Ambrose decided to make his objective to cause Seth to lose control above all else I dare say it's because it proves at least in Dean's mind that Seth Rollins is a no good liar 
there's a certain self-defeating logic in that that could only stem from someone who is blinded by their own point of view, blinded by their own thirst for uh, justice. I, I see. I, I'm not comfortable using that word. It's it's not justice. It's I can't think of anything better than revenge because it it just feels petty. Um, and that's the key word though is petty because. The thing that I think, when you watch the match back a second time in particular, that stands out, and when you think back on the segments of TV that is built up to this match, uh, I think what's become abundantly clear is that there's a part of Dean that is enjoying treating all of this with a certain flippancy. You know, the, the kind of the moral outrage that Seth has, has felt, the moral outrage a lot of fans have felt, a moral outrage that a lot of the broadcast team in WWE have felt, and that moral outrage that is present in the subtext that you're expected to feel towards Dean Actions, he is just completely flippantly disregarded. You know, when, when confronted about betraying uh, Seth on the night of, of Reigns' announcement that he had to depart to battle his leukemia, Dean was like, well, we won the titles, didn't we? He was very flippant about it. And, and what struck about this match was that at least up until he sort of snapped in the final quarter, um, Dean seemed to be almost enjoying it. I mean, his body language, his facial expressions, you know, the way he would taunt the crowd, the way he would talk trash at Seth, everything about it made him feel like this was... Uh, or portrayed him to look like he was feeling like this was just a bit of a bit of a fun time for him that he was going to enjoy doing this and there was a, a malicious sense of enjoyment to it that again a, little, a bit like Daniel Bryan wasn't necessarily sadistic uh, I don't think that neither Dean nor Seth could be truly sadistic to the other and incidentally as a side note I mean one of the things that Corey Graves said uh, or one of the announcers anyway said as the match began was that there was now nothing but animosity between the two of them and that's never true of Seth and Dean I mean let's just put that out there straight away these are two guys that even when they are hating each other still harbour an immense amount of love uh, for one another and affection for one another it can just sometimes get warped that's something Mav and I have been discussing in in depth over the last three weeks in our in-depth look back at their relationship so if, if you didn't catch those shows and you'd like to hear a bit more about that, go check them out on demand. So I think, you know, that there's absolutely animosity is the overriding emotion right now. That's undeniable, but there will always be that sense of love. And I think you, you've seen that again on the TV. There's a sense of petulance uh, when uh, in Ambrose when Seth was sort of focusing on other stuff in, in the last week with, uh, you know, the Baron Corbin stuff. So, but the match, as I said, to, to kick things off. So you've got all this stuff going on with Dean. The match then really was the match as advertised, which was Dean kind of just playing a long game, wearing Rollins down, waiting for that opportunity to just just pick away at him. Just chip, chip, chip away at Seth, pick away at him, and then eventually do something that's going to tip him over the edge. And that's what this was. This wasn't so much a wrestling match as it was Dean Ambrose doing his best to torture Seth Rollins for 30 minutes emotionally and physically this was so i guess maybe it was sadistic actually thinking about it i'm talking myself into believing that it was this was torture in in a in a very literal sense dean was picking seth apart deconstructing him and the important thing to understand about that is that that takes on a whole other level particularly with someone like seth rollins because of the experiences seth had as a member of the authority where triple h over the course of 2 years deconstructed Seth down to the very soul. 
remade Seth, brainwashed him, remade him in his own image, changed who Seth was as a person, completely and unambiguously stole Seth Rollins from himself. That is a horrific experience to have gone through, and here Dean Ambrose is trying to do the very same thing. So there's a very individual impact that's going to have on Seth, quite apart from the fact that it's Dean doing it, quite apart from the fact this is all wrapped up in a betrayal of the shield and of Seth's trust and all that love and affection. There is, because of Seth's individual experience in the authority, a whole other level to what Dean was doing. So it was really only a matter of time before Seth did break, before that wall was chipped away. The fantastic thing very early on in the match is that Seth Rollins is indeed laser-focused. The, the commentators talk about it. Ambrose had talked about it, uh, about it being a target of his to, to shake that focus. But Rollins' body language, you know, the way he comes out to the ring, he's sort of smiling to the crowd. And also very early on, he's very uh, restrained. He doesn't launch into risks. He doesn't launch into offensives. He's restrained. He picks his spots. He's in full architect mode. And that's what Dean is. Dean tries to then then pick away. And there's there's a wonderful moment very early on where um, Seth. I can't remember what he does exactly. He does something to Dean. He might punch him or something. Dean stumbles away into the corner, and Seth kind of just pauses and looks at him. And it's and he, he kind of it's like he's weighing up the options silently, having a conversation. Do I just launch in and, and headstrong and just beat the living crap out of him, or do I keep playing the game? Do I keep playing this as a wrestling match? And he ultimately opts for a wrestling match. And it's Ambrose's plan to wear that focus down to the point where he can take advantage. So he does the you know the fist bump and stuff. Um, and it's a it's a cumulative game. There's no one moment. Ambrose does it long enough and consistently enough that by the end, Rollins has Ambrose by the throat in what is a beautiful mirror image of the ending, as, as my friend Maverick points out on Twitter, to the Hell in a Cell Lumberjack matches with the roles reversed. And, and Rollins, you know, heartbreakingly says to Ambrose, you should have trusted me. I mean, oh... You know, you should have trusted me, man. It gets me a little bit emotional. So he's he's there and he says that to him, you know, and then he slaps him in the face. I think he calls him a selfish son of a bitch or something. And that's the moment Ambrose picks. That's when he knows Rollins is no longer the architect. He's turned into a madman, which is a, a phrase he shouts at the referee very early on, incidentally. And and that, that alone, I mean, that moment where he screams at the referee, he's a madman. You know, that's part and parcel of Ambrose's game here, which is to treat it with a little bit of, of flippant humour, to be contemptuous, to make Seth angry at his disposition towards the entire situation. The, the crowning achievement of the match for me, though, happened afterwards, which happens when... So Dean picks up the victory. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago on Raw, he said, don't worry, because after I've beaten him, the Intercontinental Championship will fall safely into my hands. Go back and watch the match, folks, and watch how Dean reacts when he's won. There's no over-the-top celebration. He doesn't beat Seth up. He doesn't kick him out of the ring. There's nothing. He just kneels there, hands outstretched, and like exactly as he promised, prophetically even, the Intercontinental Championship falls safely into his hands. And in that moment, that's such a powerful moment for his character because this frenetic lunatic is the very image of stability. And that is so 
frightening. I mean, it it chills me to the bone to see that because an Ambrose who is in complete control is arguably the single most dangerous entity in WWE and not even Seth Rollins may be able to beat him because every single time they've ever wrestled in the ring, the only time Seth has won is through sheer luck or shenanigans. And right now it doesn't look like he's got either on his side because of course Ambrose did pick up the victory. It was a divisive match. Not everyone liked it. I dare say it's not going to go down well in the annals of, of WWE's critical history. I don't know why on earth they had Seth apologize for it. I thought it was a phenomenal piece of work. It really stands up on a second watch. I don't think it's among their best, but just the, the, the cumulative small touches, the subtext, and that final image of a stable Dean Ambrose all of them make it very, very memorable and another, I think, fitting contribution to their ongoing story. Okay, that leaves us with the main event. We've got about 15 minutes left here, folks, so um, we've, you know, we've got plenty of time to really break this one down. There's really two two levels to, to, to what I've been left thinking about TLC 2018's main event, which of course saw Becky Lynch defend her SmackDown Live Women's Championship against Asuka and Charlotte in the first ever women's TLC match. There is the character side of it, the narrative side of it, and there's the genre side of it. Now, very, very quickly, for those who haven't read my book or my columns, when I talk about wrestling genre, most people would think in terms of, oh, he means that particular gimmick match. So I would say that the ladder match is a genre. But the advantage of thinking of them in terms of genre is that you begin to identify the common tropes of what makes it a genre, of what makes a ladder match a ladder match, other than the fact it's a ladder match. Um, But, you know, in terms of content, what really marks the best ones from the worst ones, what people can kind of expect. And that gives you an ability to appreciate when genres are subverted, innovated, reset, all manner of different things. I felt from that perspective, the women's TLC match this last week and was not a great example of the genre in all honesty. It was very safe, as which is a ludicrous term to use in a TLC match, but you know, in creatively speaking, conceptually speaking, it didn't really do anything new that we hadn't seen before. It was referencing uh, uh, events in, in previous matches just a couple of months ago, though admittedly there was a, a, a creative benefit to that talked of course about Becky's big spot off the ladder um but you know no no real new kind of spots no kind of new take on the on the on the match type so it was a very safe very restrained one but then you kind of think well it's the first ever women's version maybe they're just looking to break a little bit of ground maybe they're just testing it testing the water seeing what they can and can't get out of it you know getting used to the feel of being in a TLC match and having to navigate the structural difficulties that must come with having to set up you know ladders and tables and chairs for what can sometimes be quite complex spots. So I think from a genre genre perspective, uh, it wasn't that great. It was it was kind of ordinary. But what it lacked in terms of genre innovation or genre accomplishment, I think it more than made up for in terms of character and narrative. And I feel like having gone back and rewatched it just a little while ago what was the overwhelming theme kind of linked back to what I pointed out in the alternative pre-show last week. So what I said in the pre-show last week was that the world shouldn't look past Asuka here because this had become, for all three of them, a case of their spotlight being stolen. This was about now more than a championship, it felt like. Uh, You know, it had become about who the alpha female was. And Becky Lynch snapped because she felt like she wasn't getting... 
uh, her just desserts as, a, as an alpha female. And then Charlotte snapped uh, when she came across uh, Ronda Rousey in a, in a symmetrical situation uh, with the Becky and Charlotte situation. And then Asuka snapped because she obviously felt that Charlotte and Becky were in combination doing that to her as well. And of course, she perhaps had more reason than anybody to be angry at, at not being given uh, due care and attention by the powers that be because she was the one who was undefeated for over two and a half years. Started off with what should have been a show-closing match at WrestleMania this year. Ended it with a great threat of irrelevance hanging over her head. And you saw that all come to a to a, uh, to a boiling point on the go-home SmackDown Live last week. That really came heavily to play into the match, but in it not quite the universal way I was expecting because what I felt having rewatched it was that Asuka won because she was the only woman in the match whose primary primary focus was still on the women's Spatnell Live Women's Championship and leaving as champion. Which is a point that was reinforced by a tweet that Triple H sent out after the fact, after the match, after the pay per view. You know, he did the pose with with Asuka with the title, and he, I can't remember what it was verbatim, but it was something along the lines of she's never cared about undefeated streaks uh, or what show she's on. She's cared about proving she's the absolute best in the world of what she does by winning championships or something along those lines, and that's what she'd done. And but that that very much speaks to her performance in the match, apart from one moment where she kind of loses it with a, a kendo stick. Uh, which even that ends with her eyes locking back on the SmackDown Live Women's Championship before Charlotte spears her into the barricade, Asuka's sole focus is on winning the match. Alternatively, Becky and Charlotte, it becomes very clear as the match progresses, this is this is an issue that's conflated for them both. This goes beyond championships now. In their own mind, it may still be about the title, but really, it's that kind of situation where you don't know what you don't know, like where you're losing sight of your own self. And you think it's you think you're reacting to something because of one thing, but really it's about something else. And you could tell that it's all it's gotten to a point where it's it's literally all about ego for the two of them now. Who's the bigger woman? You know, it starts off with the two of them bickering at one another, and Charlotte saying that Becky's all talk, all talk, and Becky saying I'm not going to have you take this title away from me again. You know, they're obsessed with each other, and that continues through the match. Charlotte shouting and roping like a petulant child. It's my title. It's my title. You know, after she's wailed away. At several points through the match, I think this even gets pointed out in commentary. What you find is that Charlotte and Becky both have. Uh, perfect opportunities to climb the ladder and potentially win the match, but instead, in each instance, they opt to deal out more punishment instead, and you go, well, why would they do that? And the answer is because, really, for them, it's not about the championship anymore. It's about proving a point to the other one. It's about, you know, it's whatever you could do, I could do better, but in a more petulant sense. It's two kids arguing over a toy saying, no, it's mine, no, it's mine, no, it's mine, no, it's mine. And that's what it's become for Charlotte and Becky. And then when you inject the Ronda Rousey situation into that, you start to see how it's threatening to escalate because now you've got Ronda Rousey, who I dare say feels the same way, has a similar mentality, but more to the point, has only exacerbated the pre-existing issue between Charlotte and Becky, which is now all solely about ego. So you get the impression when you watch the match back that if it was really still about the championship for the two of them, if it was really still about leaving a SmackDown Live Women's Champion, 
um, then they then they very well one of them very well may have done that. And it was only because Asuka didn't really care. Because if Asuka was of the same mentality, then the moment when Ronda had pushed Becky and Charlotte off of the ladder, Asuka would have picked up a chair and gone to work on them both a bit more again. Instead, her eyes went straight up to the championship. She began that ascent. And just as I said not to sleep on her, she grabbed that championship. And now she's the SmackDown Live Women's Champion. From a sports entertainment perspective, a lot of people are going to be complaining about how you've done nothing with her for months and suddenly she's the champion and why should I accept that? Well, you should accept it because you should focus on the narrative situation that was in play. And the narrative situation that was in play, as I've just said, was the character subtext that meant that Asuka was focused on being the champion and the other two weren't. But also you had that shared universe aspect come into play and we always love shared universe here on Sports Entertainment is Dead where Ronda Rousey, who was of course in the same building as the same two women on this co-branded pay-per-view and had... uh, issues unresolved issues with both of them uh came out and made a presence felt which she absolutely should have done it would have been a mistake not to do that because that's what the characters dictate and for once wwe went with what the characters seemed to dictate and i applaud them very much for doing that i have seen some consternation about what the about rouse's actions that she comes out and she just tips over the ladder and that's it and she doesn't uh you know, she doesn't decide to inflict a bit more punishment on them or anything. Um, payback's... Is that really in keeping with someone who's just said if, literally a few minutes beforehand that payback's a bitch and I'm the baddest one on the planet? Well, I actually think that it makes a lot of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense because it's... Uh, it's... it You know, it's a dangerous situation when you have all those chairs, ladders and tables around the ring and without wanting to make Ronda sound like a coward, I think it's smart not to invite a fight with people who whose uh, blood is up because of the because of the war that they're in and you know anybody who'd been watching the match would know that their blood was up that they were spoiling for a fight at this point because of the fact they just kept going back to dole out more punishment you see when you start to break these things down guys you get into a real kind of tightly knit web of 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 creativity it's so much fun to do um so Ronda wouldn't have wanted to have openly risked a fight i don't think i know that she talks about being a fighter and stuff maybe it was a little bit out of character but um you know, ultimately, she's she's a champion. She marks success by by being a champion, and there was no need for her to get embroiled in in a big fist fight when all she had to do to get the better of them two was to push a ladder over. And I think what makes that almost better payback than beating the two of them up is that it's so vindictive because it's so simple. Like it's embarrassing for Charlotte and Becky both that all it took was tipping a ladder over, and now neither one of them is champion. Like there's there's just some some kind of inbuilt. <clears throat> Uh, I don't know what the word is, but like I said, it, it would be hugely embarrassing for those two women who, at this point, is it is all about ego. It is all about I am, you know, I'm the big I am. And it's kind of like embarrassing the school bully in a way. Um, and so to have done that, I thought I thought it was the perfect vindication for Ronda. And, and more to the point, creatively, you know, you don't want to you don't want to waste too much too soon. So it kind of makes sense from a writing perspective to hold back on the big fights a little bit. Uh, it just builds nicely to that big showdown that's eventually coming. Um, it also kind of cool to see Ronda and Asuka in the same space without interacting with one another because that's a ticking time bomb that we can only hope is going to go off at some point. That's a match that I really want to see, and that's really. I felt the takeaway from this entire main event is that Asuka was the most focused on the championship, but I think she also came off as the most accomplished performer, not just in a fictional sense either, but in a real world sense. I think out of the three of them, she looked the most polished. She looked the tightest. She looked the least overly melodramatic in her body language and her reactions. 
and uh, selling and all that sort of stuff. I don't want to get too bogged down in that kind of a conversation because this is sports entertainment is dead, but I felt it was worth noting. I feel like the right character won the match and I also feel like the right woman won the match and it's good to see Asuka with that SmackDown Live Women's Championship. And and the great thing is because it wasn't a dominant victory, it means that her character still has something left to prove again. It means that she's still got space there to develop as a character because sometimes the arc is getting to the title and then the arc stops and you've got nowhere left to go and the champion ends up becoming kind of a bit player in other people's narratives. The nice thing about this is that Asuka still has something to prove. Can she be as dominant as she was or was this just a fluke win that was caused by Ronda Rousey? And that's hopefully going to be a, a narrative that we get to say, see play out through, I guess, through WrestleMania season. I mean, that's what I would like to see is is a, a big WrestleMania storyline for, for Asuka that is about proving that she still has what it was she had before she lost to Charlotte and as a matter of fact I think that sets up a Charlotte-Asuka rematch at Wrestlemania this year with the title on Asuka instead brilliantly and I would love to see the two of them wrestle again I would love to see Asuka pick up a win at Wrestlemania you could even then carry it on to a third year but that's I think the best thing about all of this is that you've now got this evolving situation with Ronda Rousey Becky Lynch and Charlotte that has gone beyond the championship and so the championship's been removed from the narrative quite fittingly at least for the time being on the Smackdown side anyway Um, and there's loads of room left for that to continue to develop because they've sort of held back on it a little bit you've also got Asuka as champion where she should be and best of all you've got a narrative arc that you could tap into for Asuka over the coming months as well so even though from a genre perspective the match wasn't really up to all that much I think from a character perspective it was very revealing and from a narrative perspective it was actually an incredibly well thought out piece of work that has set up the next few months in sublime fashion for Smackdown Live's women's contingent And that about wraps up the performance art review of TLC 2018. We've run out of time, didn't get a chance to cover um, some of the other bits that I wanted to, but never mind. Uh, You know, maybe I'll find some time to jot them down in a column or something, I'm not sure, or we might pick up that discussion on the right side of the pond. You can, of course, check me out this Friday on the right side of the pond, and don't forget that next week, right here, Sports Entertainment is Dead plays host to the author of the literally the two books on Sports Entertainment, being Chad the Doc Matthews, and we're going to be debating our competing philosophies or maybe competing is the wrong word but our our alternative philosophies on receiving professional wrestling based on the platform of asking whether Seth Rollins my boy has yet wrestled a five-star match that's going to be basically just our little in road to the conversation which is going to be far broader than that so that's going to be two hours next week on boxing day so I do hope you check that show out excuse me (coughs) getting excited I'm coughing uh, and in the meantime like I said right side upon on Friday but check out all the great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio um, if you want to get in touch with me discuss anything to do with TLC any of the characters or narratives I've discussed on the show this week or to provide any feedback on the show itself there's a litany of different ways you can do that I am on Twitter at LOP Plan I am on Facebook you just have to look up Samuel Plan uh, I can be reached on email just email samuel.plan101 at gmail.com you could drop me a comment on any of my columns or podcast posts on lordsofpain.net best of all why not sign up to LOP forums it's free to do so you can get interacting with what I honestly believe is the best community of wrestling fans out there on the world wide web try your hand at maybe writing a few columns try your hand at at, at just posting in some of the threads there's wrestling stuff non-wrestling stuff great folks all abound you can hit me up on there with a with a PM or, or whatnot so no shortage of ways to get in contact folks do please 
get in touch. Let me hear your thoughts on any of the topics I've discussed on this show or any other shows. I'd love to have a conversation with you guys. In the meantime, if you do celebrate Christmas, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. I hope you have a lovely day next week. I hope you get all the nice things you may want. Or best yet, you just get to spend some time with cherished and loved ones. Make sure to be a little bit generous this December, folks. If this isn't your time of year, if it's a little bit rough with you, then know my thoughts are with you all the same. You have my support and my love. I hope you have a great day just for the sake of it, because you can't have too many great days. And with that being said, I will, of course, see all you good folks with our friend Chad Matthews this time. Well, actually, not this time next week, because it's a little bit earlier, so don't get caught out by that. But I'll see you next week. Have a good one.